What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe and welcome to everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We have a fantastic episode lined up for you today. But as always, before we dive in, we would like to thank our incredible patrons and academates who keep this podcast on the road. And this week, we would like to thank Morgan Delaney, who has joined us as a patron. So welcome, Morgan. Please uh, make space at the back there. There's more room for everyone. If you would like to join us, please pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. There is so many incredible things that you get. But most of all, folks, most of all, it's that lovely warm feeling that you're supporting (laughs) the creative arts. And that's what podcasting is all about. So Mr. Stay, talking about exciting times, you're you're the, the eve before your new book launch, which is a moment that so many authors dream of getting to. What does it feel like to be right there, right on the cusp of a new of a new novel coming out? It never gets old, mate. Never gets old. Yes, so we're recording this on Wednesday the 6th. So it's the night before uh, The Ghost of Ivy Barn comes out on 7th of July. Um, You know, so very excited. So lots of practical things today. Things like I've been going through my... Um, updating my website and things that, you know, that say that used to say pre-order now, just changing all of those to order now or buy now or click Mm. here, that sort of thing. All those little practical things. Uh, I've scheduled a newsletter for tomorrow morning saying, yay, it's out. Here's how you buy it. Please leave a review, that sort of thing. Uh, And of course, we've got the... um, launch tomorrow at Waterstones in Canterbury. Uh, So uh, getting ready for that. Claire's made a load of cakes. Uh, She's icing them now as we speak, I think. (laughs) So I've got the cake toppers. They're going to go on last because Claire learned that the cake toppers, if you put them on too early, they curl at the edges. So we're going to put them on at the very last minute. Top tip for cake toppers there. And, And we're also doing, because we're doing an online streaming thing as well. So we've been preparing for that. So we've, um, the other thing that happened this week is I released an unboxing video as well. So uh, we've put that out there and I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Uh, and basically the fun thing with the unboxing video is I say to people, look, can you spot the ghost in the mm. unboxing video? And he pops up four times. I uh, watched it, Mark. I watched yeah? it and watched it three times and couldn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> So it's very subtle. Well, very subtle, the thing brilliantly is- filmed. I mean, the, the, I was super impressed with like the quality of the video, and yeah. and actually, just you can tell you've done acting because you're actually quite relaxed <laughs> on stage. Uh, on stage, I mean, on, on camera. I think for a lot of a lot of authors, it'd be quite kind of awkward and difficult. But you've done a few well, of these now, haven't you? 
Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, one, it's shot by Kai Newton, who is my daughter's fella, and he's fantastic with yeah. a camera. He really knows what he's doing, and he's he's edited it beautifully as well. Shot it and edited just fantastically. Um, so all all testament to Kai and Emily for and and their friend Harry, who helped out on the day as well as a production assistant. Um, so there's that. It looks good. Uh, the acting. It's interesting because my son is in it as the ghost, and I his- I did see that actually there. So I did see it once at the. V- the, right at the end. I yeah, went right yeah. at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the, the the thing is, my son, who's now how old is he? Twenty? Um, twenty one? It's twenty one. Uh, oh you forget. You forget after <laughs> you a while. Well. Yeah. Um, he's now critiquing me on oh, my acting. Love right. It. So we've been. Uh, we, <laughs> we, we've life. done it. We've done it exactly. We've done a few <laughs> takes, and he came up to me and said, "Yeah, yeah, your acting's getting a lot better now." Actually. <laughs> oh, thank you very bloody much. You asked your opinion. That's not what I said. That was what was going through my head oh, when he said it. But I if love you're it. if you're having problems um, finding the ghosts, we're actually releasing. And this will be out now. Uh, a this is where the ghosts are oh, video. That's so funny. So I'm sort of freeze framing it, going there. It is so many seconds in. There know? it is, and, and you zoom in. So I there's think this that is as brilliant. Well. This totally reminds me of when we released Jen's very last monster book because the point of the monster book was you had to find the monsters, and we had so many parents. <laughs> Who yeah. was sitting with their kids at bedtime reading it, going, "I can't find the monster." <laughs> we, we, we actually, we actually had to create like a, the equivalent of a, like a little heat map. It was like a cheat sheet for people who were so, who right. got to a point where they were so kind of Very like good. ripping their hair out that they couldn't find the monsters, even though they were right there in front of them. And we actually, <laughs> actually put a, we did a pic, a kind of a version of the picture with a little dot to say it's around here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Well, no, I think it's great though. I mean, you've got because it'd be so easy just to do in quotes another unboxing video and oh, here's my box and here's my book and oh, I'm so excited. But what I love about what you've done and everyone should take note of this is that you know it doesn't it, just a little bit of extra creativity that creates a bit of fun and you know interaction if you like between the audience watching it um you know it just it just gives it so much more life so yeah i think well, it's, i think it's brilliant I do, I do i do get carried away though i mean i i do take advantage of the fact i've got some really good filmmakers yeah. with an absolutely cracking camera and some you know expertise and editing and stuff like that so it it's is i mean it's shot on a 6k camera it's film quality it's, it's, it's it really is good. it is actually that was the thing when i looked at it i thought i saw you walking along uh, a pathway or a field or something and uh, I was like god the, the quality of it, oh, no. the, it, look, it looked like a movie trailer like the just the grain you know like when you see yeah when yeah. you see proper like movie trailers and there's something Hollywood about it it's kind well, of it's been graded gloss. Yeah. That's the thing. It's been color graded, which most people don't know about unless you, you're a serious filmmaker. So it has been color graded. So the thing <laughs> is, I've really painted myself into a corner because yeah. if they leave, it'll be back to me and my iPhone again. It'll be you. you, and you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. I love it. I love it. Oh, don't try this at home, folks, literally. So anyway, no, we'll, put, we'll, we'll, we'll put links to those in the show notes. So you've got the yeah. unboxing video. You've got the where is the ghosts in the unboxing video video. And we've also got... Uh, behind the scenes in gag reel one which hasn't gone live uh, at the time of recording but will go live on friday i think Perfect. so i'll put links to all of those in the show notes so you can it's actually a little playlist of all my unboxing videos and the first one for the end of magic is actually quite normal it's me opening a box of books which is what you know well, it used it. to be yeah yeah before you up the game exactly <laughs> i yeah. made it impossible for everyone to try and <laughs> to try and join you that's fantastic 
But let's have a, an answer we should say to everyone. Like if you've got, if you're doing an unboxing video, let us know about it. Um, you know, we'd like to share the share and spread the word. It's um, even if it's just held on, you know, partner's phone or something, it's worth capturing that moment for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's something that you can use in your social media. It's, but it's also really important, I think, to capture the moment because yeah. it only happens yeah. once. You can't, you know, you can't recreate the magic, so to speak, by opening a box, you know, the 10th time. It's it's about getting that milestone recorded. And it's fun, I think, for people to watch in years to come as well, like 20, 30 years mm -hmm. down the road. It'd just be brilliant yeah. watching those videos because yeah. especially if a book, everything that goes on and becomes something huge, it's kind of like a really milestone moment in some ways. We actually had the option, Mark. Um, we were invited by the publishing company, not publishing, the uh, the printers. They actually right. invited us to their factory and said, look, if do you actually want to see the first book coming off the machine. That. I thought, wow. Brilliant. We couldn't wow. do it because we'd have had to travel like thousands of miles in Canada just oh. to get to this printers in the middle of nowhere. But how that's almost like the ultimate, isn't it? Mm. To be able to actually watch, see the book actually being made because it would make it even more um, amazing and incredible to see it all put together and yeah. see the first one come off the line. But if anyone's ever done that, let us know about it because we want to know what that experience is like Brilliant. as well. There's, there's, um, cool. there's an episode of the Alan Partridge show where he goes to see his book being pulped. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. All the unsold oh copies. That's, that's like the, uh, the, the, the alternative version of that, yeah. isn't it? Oh, my gosh. Funny. <laughs> Brilliant stuff. Well, listen, good luck tomorrow, Mark. We're, we're rooting for you. Can't Thanks, wait man. to hear how it all goes uh, next week. And um, and I think we should dive into our interview today because we have quite an incredible interview with none other than Saray Walker. So tell us, Mark, about Saray. Yes, Saray Walker. Her first novel, Dietland, was a, a huge success and made into a TV series as well. And she was a consultant in the writers' room for the TV series, and we, we talk about that as well. Uh, Saray is fantastic. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian. She's a professor of creative writing, and uh, her new book is The Cherry Robbers, which is a New York Times spring fiction pick, uh, a Goodreads pick, uh, and it's a twisted, dark gothic novel it's uh, funny enough it's been compared to the haunting of hill house which is exactly what we were going for with our ghosts in the ghost of ivy barn video we're going for that haunting of hill house effect anyway uh so saray and i we discuss toxic mentors how to dramatize a personal struggle and claiming your space as a writer brilliant so let's dive in and listen to mark chatting with the lovely saray walker so, Ray Walker, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today? Great. Thanks so much for having me. It's our absolute pleasure. And first of all, I want to talk about your new book, The Cherry Robbers, which is a New York Times spring fiction pick for 2022. It's a Goodreads pick for May 2022. It's a twisted, dark, gothic novel. And I've already seen loads of comparisons to Shirley Jackson, who, of course, wrote Haunting of Hill House. Uh, it looks incredible. Tell us about The Cherry Robbers. So The Cherry Robbers, yes, it's a gothic novel, I would say, in the tradition of Shirley Jackson. Um, and it is, so it's bookended. So it's bookended by a present day narrative. And we meet a reclusive 80-year-old artist who lives in the high desert of northern New Mexico. And she's a world famous painter. Um, I might be playing a little bit with George O'Keefe there. Um, and so anyway, you know, she's very reclusive. She doesn't want to be bothered. And then at the beginning of the novel, she 
received a letter from a journalist saying, I know that you're living under an assumed identity. I would love to talk to you, you know, and, and tell your real story. Um, and so, you know, she panics and uh, realizes this is the closest she's ever come to, to being exposed. And so she decides to sit down and tell her own story um, of what happened to her and her five sisters back in 1950s in Connecticut. So most of the novel takes place in the 50s in Connecticut, and it's her writing her story of what happened to her sisters. And I'm not giving anything away by saying that she is the only one that survived into young adulthood. You know that from the beginning of the novel. It's one of those novels where you kind of know what happens. You, know, you maybe don't know the specifics of how we get there, but you know what happens. And then the novel's filling in, well, how did that happen and why did it happen? Um, so that's kind of the gist of it. Um, and I guess what I didn't mention is that the family, she grew up in um, with the Chapel family and they are a firearms dynasty. Um, so that I'm kind of playing around with the Winchester rifle a bit. Yeah, yeah. And the mother in the family is inspired by Sarah Winchester, mm. who believed, well, according to the popular legend, she believed that her family's, uh, or that her family was haunted by the ghosts of people killed by the Winchester rifles. Mm -hmm. So I'm playing around with that in the cherry robbers and the chapel family, the mother thinks that they're haunted by the, the people who have been killed by the chapel rifles. So <clears throat> the mother's the entry point to where a lot of the haunting and, you know, ghosts, I mean, we'll see, you know, are they real ghosts or is it something else? But she thinks they're ghosts. Um, and that kind of opens the door to what unfolds throughout the novel, the more Gothic <laughs> twisted tale that, that comes out. It's just, it's it sounds absolutely wonderful, and the whole angle with the um the Winchester family. Now, for for listeners who don't know the, the you know the Winchester rifle, obviously you know hugely successful, made lots and lots of money, and Sarah Winchester was was essentially the last person left of of this dynasty, as I understand it, and she had this incredible house which she kept building rooms. They were like doors that went nowhere, staircases that went nowhere, and there were rumours that it was it was haunted. And there have been films and books based on, on this before. So you weren't tempted just to do a straight kind of historical retelling. You wanted to shift it to, to Connecticut and invent a, a family. Was that, uh, was that always on the cards, or did you ever try and do a kind of historical retelling? You know, I wasn't actually tempted to do that. I mean, Sarah Winchester lived actually in a different time period mm. um, than what, than my novel. Um, and, you know, she married into the Winchester family um, and they had a daughter who died very young and then her husband died young and she inherited all of his money. And then she moved to San Jose, California and built this huge mansion. Like you were just talking about, it's called, it's called the Winchester mystery house. It's a huge tourist attraction in downtown San Jose. Um, so her story, I just kind of use it as a jumping off point. You know, um, you know, she had one child who died very young, whereas in my novel, the mother has six daughters. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, what I like to do a lot, you know, I play around with George O'Keefe in this novel as well, but sometimes I'll take a real person. I did this in Dietland too. And just sort of take a kernel of that person and then turn it into a fictional character and have fun and, and play with it. So um, I just kind of stole a couple aspects of her life, but most of it is, is just fictionalized. It's just my take on it. Um, so I, I like doing that in every novel. The novel I'm working on now also does that. So <laughs> wonderful stuff. I'm looking at the blurb and at the, the 50s setting, uh, at least, you know, the, the flashbacks to the 1950s um, seems quite uh, 
apt because it says here for young women in 1950s Connecticut, the only way out is marriage and marriage equals death. Now we're recording this in a week when uh, certainly in the States, there's, you know, Roe versus Wade, there's discussions about women's rights, women's, uh, you know, future. I was talking to a friend yesterday and she was like, I thought we progressed in history, but now we seem to be going back. Was that the sort of thing that was on your mind when you were writing this? Well, it's interesting, you know, so it's a very subversive novel, but it's wrapped up in a in a pretty package. So it's kind of stealthy in the way it worked, you know, it kind of creeps up on you, like what's happening in the novel. Um, and, you know, my first novel, Dietland, was very explicitly feminist. So that's the kind of writing that I like to do. Um, but again, I play with it. They're a bit stealthy, the stories and how they work. You don't really know what territory you're in at first. Um, and so, you know, yeah, we don't, you know, when I was working on, I was thinking, okay, this is the 1950s. It's very much about, you know, traditional marriage and, and all of that. Are people today going to be able to relate to that? And, you know, I felt like, well, you know, lots of parts of it do resonate with today. And I didn't really worry about that. I just, I just went ahead and wrote it, but <laughs> it's really strange now, like, a week and a half before it comes out in the States and about a month before it comes out in the UK, um, that this is happening, you know, that, that the Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned. I mean, we knew it was going to be, um, but, you know, reading this opinion of Justice Delito, the draft opinion where he's quoting a, a, an English lawyer who, you know, wanted women to be executed for witchcraft and just these, you know, he's quoting this in a Supreme Court opinion, um, someone who thought marital rape was was a good thing, you know, and this is and this is what's happening now. So I started to kind of think, God, you know, I wrote this novel about the 1950s. And then here, like right now, there are people in, in major positions of power in the U.S. who are literally trying to take us back to that. Mm -hmm. And so it became even more relevant to today in like a horrible, <laughs> scary way. But yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot and over the past week or so as all this has been happening. Mm. Uh, with regard to the genre, the whole, the whole kind of gothic horror kind of ghost story kind of angle to it, was that a genre that you loved reading? Uh, and was it one, you know, was this something that you'd always wanted to, to, to write? And if so, what was your approach to it? What what did you feel you could bring to the the genre? Um, you know, I would say it wasn't something that I really always wanted to write. I love ghost stories. Like I love movies that were ghost stories. Um, so I always love that as a, a reader or viewer. Um, but it's not something I ever imagined myself writing. But then I came up with this idea um, and I knew it was going to be kind of creepy and spooky. You know, in the early stages, you don't really know how it's all going to unfold over what ended up being a very long period of time. Um, but I kind of had the basic premise and I mentioned it to a writer friend of mine and she's like, Oh, you're, you know, you're writing a Gothic. And I was like, Oh God, that's, that's true. I am. So I hadn't really set out to do that. It's just that the story that I thought of fit into that framework, or I should say, you know, under that umbrella, because Gothic is a very broad term. Mm. Um, and so as I was working on the novel, I did, you know, I, I started to read more Shirley Jackson. I read, um, De Maurier, you know, Rebecca, my cousin, Rachel, like, I love those. Those were very influential. Um, you know, of course, Emily Dickinson, the Brontes, you know, all of that's in there. So, um, I had fun with that, but I didn't, I didn't worry so much like, oh, am I, you know, is this, 
kind of really totally fit into the Gothic framework. I didn't think about that. I just kind of, I knew certain elements did the haunted house, Mm -hmm. the mother seeing the spirits, you know, the mad woman in the attic type thing. And then I just, I kind of played with it a bit, but I didn't tie myself down to anything in that way. Did you enjoy writing in that, in that genre though? Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, it was, you know, tremendous fun. And I had, you know, Diet Lamb was really rooted in reality, even though it had some kind of uh, grand flourishes, you know, of this international terrorist group that, that wasn't, you know, entirely realistic, but it was still very much grounded in reality. So this was a lot of fun. It had, it was just more surreal and had a lot of these strange elements in it. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's go back to where it all started for you, Sarah. What Were you that child who was always writing, always had a fertile imagination, or, or did writing come later to you? Where did it all start? Yeah, I did start writing at a very young age. Um, you know, I, I remember when I was real little, I would I like to write plays. I don't, I don't know why, but um, so I kind of started off, you know, writing what I thought were plays when I was little, and then high school wrote, you know, short stories and um, had dreams of writing a novel. So I I started off um, writing from a very young age, but, but I would say that, you know, I didn't really, I was a very much a late bloomer in terms of when I actually started um, being able to publish. I mean, I spent most of my 30s working on Diet Land, but it wasn't published until I was in my early 40s, which in the publishing world is considered old <laughs> to publish your first novel. So, um, which, you know, I, I don't, agree at all that that's true, no, but that's definitely not. how it's framed. You know, <laughs> um, I feel like the older you are, you know, the more experience you have. I mean, I couldn't have written Diet Land when I was in my 20s um, or too young. You know, I had to have a certain amount of life experience for that. So um, I thought being older was an asset. But yeah, I started out very young, but it took a long time for me to become a published author. I'd like yeah. to, uh, I saw a, a quote from you in a Guardian interview talking about when you were younger. And if I may quote this, um, you said, when I was a young writer, a powerful literary man took an interest in my work. This man who had discovered authors who later became famous was a notorious bully, but he fawned over the short stories I sent him. His attention was thrilling while it lasted, but he ultimately dismissed me. At 19, he said I was too young to be taken seriously. And more than that, he said I'd never be successful a successful writer until I stopped holding back in my work. Now, we love to celebrate people who inspire writers we you know we speak to so many authors who say there was a teacher who told me i could do this a parent a relative a friend or whatever but this guy i mean blimey i mean how how that must have been the most dispiriting thing ever how do you how do you get over something like that sorry you know you know it was he's a very notorious i, I won't i won't say his name but i'm sure a lot of americans <laughs> might know who i'm talking about american writers um he you know he was a very notorious kind of bully, but in a, in an era where that was sort of okay, the kind of literary bad boy, um, which I'm, you know, I think the culture has changed, you know, this was, God, it was almost 30 years ago. So it was a long time ago. Um, so I think the culture has changed a bit where that wouldn't be as acceptable, even though there are still, you know, teachers like that. But um, I think that, you know, he was kind of like this, oh, this male genius who just says what he thinks. And, you know, um, and he had told us in class, you know, don't ever tell anybody what I said, because I've been in prison. I've been in a mental hospital. And I'll come after you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a big profile of him in Vanity Fair. I'll, I'll leave it at that. So he is a very well-known um, editor, teacher, and to a lesser extent, author. But 
Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's just not the way to, um, you know, to, to deal with, to kind of bully and, and scare young writers. It's just, yeah, that's not, um, helpful at all. I don't, it doesn't work for me, you know, and as a teacher, you know, I've taught creative writing on and off over the years and I always try and be encouraging and nurturing, you know, I, I make sure I take the opposite approach from that. Um, so I think when you're very young, you get writing teachers and they get in your head, even when, you know, years after I, would, I was done working with that guy, I could still hear him in my head for a long time after mm. like, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't do this. Oh, you know, I don't want to be a sellout. Oh, if I do this, I'm not a real writer. You know, all these like BS things that he had mm. taught everybody. And it ended up really constricting me and holding me back. And I only, I really had a breakthrough as a writer when I just said, I'm doing what I want. I don't care what anybody else thinks Yeah, kind of thing. So yeah, it was very harmful in that sense, but um, overcoming it led to my breakthrough, I think, as a writer, the beginning of my breakthrough <laughs> as a writer. That's great to hear and boo to him. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your breakthrough because Dietland is astonishing. I mean, it's, um, you know, it was a smash hit. It, it, it critically acclaimed and made into a terrific AMC TV series. Uh, tell us where Dietland came from and and what I, I know it was kind of inspired a bit by Fight Club, but it also started as a short story. So where did it all begin? Where did Dietland begin for you? Gosh, I'm glad you reminded me of the short story. I kind of <laughs> forgot about that. Um, I know Dietland came out seven years ago. So I was used to like, when it came out, I was talking about it all the time, but it's been, it's been a while. Um, yeah. So I did an MFA. Um, I guess in the UK, you would just have the MA in creative MA, writing, yeah. but we have this master of fine arts in the States, two-year degree. Um, yeah. So I was talking about just a few minutes ago, I had the kind of breakthrough where I thought I'm just going to write whatever I want. I don't care what anybody <laughs> thinks. And I ended up writing this short story. It was sort of inspired by, my experience as a fat woman working in women's magazines in New York. And um, I just, you know, I'd never written about the experience of being fat before um, and written about the challenges of that and how difficult it was to work in that specific world in a fat body. And so it was a really liberating experience to write that short story. And then I realized kind of later that that could be the beginning of a novel. So that's kind of how it got started. Um, but it took, it took many years for me to just kind of figure out what the story was and how to tell it. Um, you know, Fight Club did influence me, that spirit of Fight Club. I thought, um, you know, I mean, you know, Fight Club is over 20 years old now. <laughs> we get it, given things that are happening recently in our culture, we might interpret it differently. But at the time, I just I just thought it was really exhilarating. I was like, I want to write something like that for women, just mm. to kind of burn it all down kind of mentality. And so it did inspire me. I was kind of like in conversation with it, I would say. Um, but it took a really long time for the novel to, for me to figure it out and be able to write it. Um, so it was, it was a beast, but it was, you know, I, it was, it was a great experience. Once it was all done, I'm very proud of it. Why did why do you think it, it took so long? I think that, you know, part of it was I in order to write the novel, I had to know, you know, why are fat women so hated? And and then, you know, in another way, why am I so hated? Because I'm fat. And it took me a long time to figure out the answer to that question. Like the book was sort of my grappling with trying to answer that question. So it was part of it was that. Part of it is that it was a novel that 
is about a woman. She has like a consciousness raising, if you want to use like a retro 70s term, that she comes to see the abuse that she suffers because of her weight as in a political light. And that's a lot of that as an internal psychological struggle. And, you know, a novel, yes, I mean, a novel is a medium where you can just write about what's going on in somebody's head for hundreds of pages. But, you know, it's more interesting if it's dramatized, mm. you know. And so I have to think about, okay, this is a very personal internal struggle. Like, how do I dramatize that? Yeah. So that was one of the struggles as well, because I think, you know, a lot of times you can write a novel that can be very static. It's kind of not going anywhere. Um, and I think a lot of particularly literary writers or people who who take, you know, creative writing courses at universities kind of feel like plot is something that's bad, yes. <laughs> you know, um, and that being plot driven and having a story that's sort of a page turner is a bad thing. And I, I had that idea as well. And I had to get over it and realize that, you know, I want to tell the story I want, but I have to make it an interesting experience for the reader as well. So how to balance those those things. Yeah, that's that's the trick, isn't it? You can have um, a fantastic idea, great thesis, a central dramatic argument, but unless you've got a page-turning story around that, it can become like you're standing on the street corner waving a placard about. You've, you've got to, you've got to, and as you said, you know, you've got to kind of sneak those uh, subversive ideas under the radar. You draw people in with some entertainment, and then you start feeding, you know, cool and interesting and new and fun and sometimes you know subversive ideas to the reader is that part of the fun for you yeah it's funny so when i was right when the cherry robbers um like a couple months ago my publicist was like you know write up write a write up this kind of letter to readers kind of explaining you know how the cherry robbers came about and 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 you know just some interesting things about it and so one of the things i wrote about was how i like to write something like subversive but fun like that's my thing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's what I did with Diet Land and then the Cherry Robbers. Just like something that's really subversive, but then it has to be fun to read. Yeah. yeah. And it's really hard to like, like do that. It's hard to figure out how to do that. So um, but that's what I aim for because that's the kind of book that I would love as well, you know, Absolutely. to read. Absolutely. Now it's made into a TV show, it's AMC TV show, who, you know, made Breaking Bad and these incredible uh shows that we love. Um, but as I understand it. You know, certainly most writers I know, you say to them, if someone came along and offered you the TV or film rights, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I don't care who it is. Just take it, take it, take it. But I understand you weren't just going to give this away to anyone. You wanted this done properly and you were involved in the making of the show as well. Tell us, can you tell us more about that? Yes. So I did have um, a lot of people interested in it. Um, So I got to talk with, you know, all different producers and, and people um, who were interested in adapting it. Um, and they were all great. I mean, it was hard to decide like who to choose. Um, but uh, I felt like I really clicked with Marty Knox and um, she had been a writer and like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Mad Men. And then she had, um, you know, cr- started to create her own shows and and everything. And I just felt like I clicked with her and, and her feminist vision for it. You know, one of the things I was worried about was that it would be really watered down the politics of it mm-hmm. and that the main character would not be actually a fat actress. You know, these are things I was very concerned with. And so she really, um, you know, made me feel that I could trust her. Um, you know, that, you know, obviously when you sign the rights away, it, it's that person's project, you know, it's yeah. my novel, but the TV show is, is her project, not mine. And so it's hard to sign that away. It's hard to give away your baby to somebody. Um, 
And I really trusted her because, you know, the person, once they have the right, they can do anything. It doesn't matter what they tell you yeah. when they're quote unquote courting you, they can say anything, but once they have the right, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. So there has to be a lot of trust, you know, and I, I was very firm with my agent that I will not, you know, sell this to somebody unless I feel like they're going to really honor it and have the right vision for it. Cause I would have happily just walked away and been like, you know, it doesn't have to be a TV show. Um, but you know, I, I took the leap and I'm, I'm glad I did, you know, it was, it was a once in a lifetime experience. So. Absolutely. And you were, you were, as I understand it, you were in the writer's room as well. How did that, uh, obviously film and TV is a lot more collaborative than writing a novel. What, were there any big lessons that you learned from working in the room that you've maybe taken on to, to other work? Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, as you say, it's very collaborative. So it's very, very different from how a novelist works. And it made me treasure being a novelist much more um, because I realized, you know, for me, writing is really about having my vision and having control of that vision and being able to, to bring it to life myself. I don't have to worry about what other people think or what they want to do. Um, and so watching all these TV writers and the way they work was very foreign to me. And I, I really don't like that. Like I wouldn't want to work that way, <laughs> but um, you know, just as a consultant, it was fascinating. You know, I'm in this writer's room and you have this whole staff of like really talented writers and they're all devoted to like my characters in the world that I created. So it's almost like, and, and you know, they have all these whiteboards all over with every episode, the beats for every episode. It's almost like, it was like God walking in. <laughs> like, you know, I was like the God of this world you know, <laughs> that they were all working on. It was very strange. Uh, it was a very strange experience. <laughs> um, just like a thrill, but like, sort of uncomfortable too. It was just, it was just weird. You know, writers are people who like being at home by themselves. So it, was, <laughs> it was, it was, yeah, it was a lot of things, fun, but weird and kind of anxiety causing as well. But it was, it was nice to get back to the routine with the cherry robbers, just you and the, uh, and the manuscript. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the show ended up getting canceled after one season. And, um, and so, I got to go back to work on the Cherry Robbers full time, which was the only, you know, which is the only positive thing. Cause I was dying to get back to the novel, but I just, mm. it was, you know, Dialam was a novel that had a very long life. It was a novel that got a lot of attention and then it mm. became a TV show. So, you know, that's what every writer dreams of, mm. but at the same time, I couldn't get free of it because it was always there. <laughs> like the right. same story that had been yeah. part of my life for so long, which is every day I was still in it. Yeah. And so when it got canceled, um, I was finally able to move on to the Cherry Robbers and into a different story. Cool stuff. We're obsessed with writing habits on this podcast. What's what's a day like <laughs> in the life of Saray Walker? Um, so a writing day, I usually um, try and go to the computer. I'm not a morning person. I'm, I'm very much a night person, but I have to write. I have to start writing first thing in the day. Um, or I don't ever get any writing done. Right. <laughs> so I go to the computer right away. Cause if I do anything else, like, Oh, well I'll go grocery shopping and then I'll get to writing. Is it not ever going to happen? <laughs> so I have to sit down right away and start working and get into it. Um, and then usually I'll stick with it for if it's, well, it's, it's a good day, four or five hours, otherwise, you know, two or three hours, just kind of see. Um, but yeah, I have to start early. And then sometimes later in the day though, cause I am a night person and my, my mind comes alive in a different way at night, I will open it, you know, at 11 PM and kind of tinker with things that I wrote earlier in the day. And I get, sometimes I get more clarity at that time of night. Um, but I usually try and clear writing days 
so that if I have, you know, I'll try and put errands and things on like one certain day and I pile everything into that day. And then the days I write, I just write because I kind of have a one track mind. <laughs> um, but, you know, you have to be incredibly disciplined. Um, and so whatever tricks you have to do to make that happen, they have to do it. So, um, you know, one of the things about working at home as a writer is that people think, oh, well, you know, I'll just call, I'll call yeah. you in the middle of the day or, you know, let's go have lunch or something. And you're like, <laughs> you know, I am working. Um, so it's being very territorial about that and saying, I am working just like if you're working in an office, I'm working too. Um, and really, you know, claiming that space as a writer. Mm, absolutely. You know, people think, oh, well, you're just home, you know, goofing around. It's like, no, I'm home working. <laughs> you hinted that you're working on the next book. Can you tell us anything about it? Or do you prefer to keep all that under wraps? Um, yeah, I can say that it's a, it's a mystery. So it's like a detective story, but there's no detective. <laughs> but my main character kind of plays the role of a detective, even though she is a, an actual detective, kind of more of a, not a Miss Marple, but you know what I mean? Like somebody who's not a detective, but is involved in solving something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a thriller. So it's, it's, again, it's mixing um, these kind of feminist subversive elements, but in a thriller detective story framework, which is really fun. Subversive, um, but fun. Subversive, yeah, exactly. but fun. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Everyone put that above their writing desk today. Subversive, but fun. Saray, <laughs> it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Folks, The Cherry Robbers is out there now, as is Dietland. Check them both out. Uh, it's been great speaking to you, Saray, and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much. I've always wondered what it must feel like, Mark, to be sitting in a room of a, of a bunch of writers trying to convert what you've written in words into the screen that must be just a fascinating moment in an author's career and it's amazing that sarai had that opportunity to be in that room yeah although i love the fact that she said um working on tv made a treasure being an author you know so yes. <laughs> yeah because we've, heard is, that. Uh, we've heard that quite a few times haven't we from people who've been in tv and loved and then become an author and just loved the fact that they could just sit by themselves and make decisions which didn't have to be through committees. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there are there are pros and cons. I mean, if I mean, Saray is in the very unique position in that they're taking her book, which is a very personal book. You know, this is um, this is you know a real statement from her about her life and the way the world sees her. And um, you know, to take something that precious and to give it to a group like that, as she said, you know, once they have the rights, they can do whatever they want, and they can, you know. And she wanted to avoid that. You know, if you can imagine such a terrible thing, you know, putting a you know someone completely you know in, unsuitable in the role or the wrong kind of directors or writers or what have you. So having that kind of input and control and trust is uh, is is really something, really really something. So and to have her in the room there to help sort of keep steady hand on the tiller as well is um, is really important. So I, I think, uh, but yeah, what you've got is a situation where. Everyone wants it to be good. Everyone's chipping in with ideas in, in a writer's room like that. And everyone's sort of hopefully, you know, all going in, in the same direction. But when it goes bad, it can go really bad. And it's it's why writers, you know, this is one of the few t- times you have real power is being able to say no or holding off. Funnily enough, um, it's just been announced 
a friend of the podcast, Ben Aronovich. Now, you know his uh, books were an option for TV, but it all fell through. They've just been optioned for TV again by a different company. Ah. And I know I know from talking to Ben at his event earlier in the year, he, he was the same. He's not just going to give these away to anyone. He's not just going to take the money and run. He wanted to be involved. He wanted to have input. He wanted, you know, to make sure that it was done properly. So, um, so yeah, it is. Uh, it's it's the, it's kind of the dream, but it's one that can turn really sour unless you really, you know, make sure that you're, they're doing the right thing, which is exactly what Saray did. Yeah, I mean, it, it excites me to think about the idea of having a group of incredibly bright creative minds all brainstorming and coming up with ideas mm. and, and making it bigger and even better than what you know maybe you've created in that book i mean i know that's probably the aim but i also love the fact that sarai and obviously ben as well there's this confidence in what they've created they know what they've created is really good mm. and i think there's a tendency isn't there for newer authors you know, the minute they get a sniff of an opportunity and they're like, yeah, just give me the contract, I'll sign it. <laughs> and I and I think and I think that's a natural thing for many first time oh, yeah. opportunities. But but authors who have built up this confidence in their work, um, it becomes about it being done the right way rather than it just being done, which is, you know, obviously w- what happens when you get a deal. So I love the fact that there's this inner, and it takes a lot, I think, for an author, especially authors tend to be, we are these creatures that kind of sometimes have a lot of self-doubt about our work. You know, you get halfway through the novel and you think, oh, this is absolute rubbish, even though you've sold a million copies of your previous novel. We've heard that so many times, right? Yeah. But I think it's very important to everyone listening as an author, you have to have that inner confidence. You have to start building that inner confidence. So if you ever find yourself in a position like Sarai, Sarai, you can be in have that inner strength to say, I want to find the right company to do this. I want to find the right director, like she talked about. And um, I really admire that. I really admire that somebody has has managed to get to a place in their career where it's about doing the right thing for the story and the characters rather than just for the bank account. Yeah, absolutely. And look, guilty as charged. You know, I've I've jumped in when people because with with writers we're like the wallflower at the disco. You know, we never picked a dance. And if someone saunters over and says, "Want to dance?" We're like, "Yeah, yeah, absolutely." And yeah. it's um, you, you do have to. Do, and I've learnt the hard way that saying no is actually the most powerful thing that you have as a writer because people end up coming back and giving you a better offer. And, um, you know, you, if you stand your ground a bit, and I, I, I hear this so often, I see this on writers' groups on Facebook where people go, well, I don't want to cause a fuss. I don't want to be seen yes. as difficult. I don't want to be seen as problematic, especially as I'm just starting out. And it's like, but this is a business. You know, if you think they're, you know, these the, – they're not gonna, you know, they're not gonna fold like a cheap umbrella. You know, they're gonna put up a fight too. They they're gonna want the best deal from their end too. So there is a bit of back and forth. You know, you can't. I think just, it's um, essential. It's absolutely yeah. essential. The, the the you're right. I mean, a lot. Uh, you know, you can tell a person by how they'll negotiate in a in a book deal based on 
whether they're the kind of person that will, when they're buying a fridge or a sofa or something like that, whether they'll ask for a discount. And I always, always ask for a discount. Oh, I bet you do. <laughs> you can imagine me. In fact, it got to a point where my 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 missus wouldn't come in with me to the shop because she was so embarrassed because usually the salesperson would be like throwing their kids into the bargain, right? It was just like, it was, it, I, because the thing is, when you understand how business works and you think, well, they've got profit margin. And if I go to another store and buy the sofa from their competitor, then it's like a double whammy to them. They're like they lose the business I would have given them and their competitor gains the business. And I think, you know, we see it. I was just watching it this weekend for all our football soccer fans. Like I'm a Liverpool fan. So I've been watching the whole Mo Salah negotiations and he hung out for like ages and got the deal he wanted because he knows his worth. And I think, it's really important to remember, and this is the bit where people forget, if you don't agree, like if a, if a, if a publishing company comes to you and says, we want to offer you, you know, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000, 50,000. If you don't, if you don't say yes, that doesn't mean they're just going to walk away. I think a lot of people worry about the fact that if they want to go into a negotiation, that they'll, they'll just walk away and they'll say, well, if you're not going to take our offer, that never happens. Yeah. yeah. There's always I mean, a first offer that, that goes on the table. And then, yeah. you know, people rarely put their best offer initially on the table. So, um, yeah. I mean, I guess that's where agents come in as well, because agents are, are absolutely They can be the bad guy they can be, on Well, your they can behalf. ask the right questions and yeah. they, they've done it a million times, um, you know, so they know how, how, the, how it works. They know the game. I actually once went, I, I was in, when I was a kid, I was in Turkey. Uh, we went on a family holiday to Bodrum, um, and it was it. There was a market in in Turkey, and I went up to the guy and I saw this incredible carved wooden carving that I I I just suddenly thought, oh, I really like to bring that back as a memento. And I asked the guy, I said, oh, how much how much is it? And he said, uh, I can't even remember what the currency was, but he said something like, let's call it ten pounds. And I said, oh, okay. And I reached into my pocket to get ten pounds. Went no. No, 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 no. Oh, no. Is this like the Monty Python? You it, don't want to haggle. You got to haggle. It was totally that moment. He said, hey, and he basically kind of gone in way higher than he wanted. And he, and it, and, and I since learned that it's a sport in Turkey at markets. Yeah, well, you have to haggle. It's all, they always go higher than the actual price. And it's a game and it's like a, and it's fun. And if you don't partake, they get really offended. So yeah. I thought, well, that's a good way to be in life. Like just go in, assuming you're always going to have a little bit of a negotiation and a haggle. Well, I, I mean, I used to work in a hi-fi shop in the late eighties. It was my first uh, job. Dixons, was it? No, it was, it was an independent, I've mentioned it before, it was an independent shop in Dorking called Data Sound. It was right opposite the Waterstones, because I, I, you know, anyone. Uh, and we used to get people like you coming all the bloody time. They'd, they'd buy some hi-fi, they'd get us all excited, we'd be filling out, and then they'd go, um, is that the best deal you can do? And I'd be like, oh, I'll go and ask my manager. But they'd always get something. They yeah. would always get, even if it was um, TDK free cables. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Some tapes or well, some free cable well, or something like that. For anyone yeah. that goes, for anyone who's never worked in retail, the thing to do is to never ask for a. Well, you can ask for a discount. You might get a discount. I got hundred dollars off my barbecue the other day because I, <laughs> I just asked, and he, and it, it was a show model, there. and it's a show. No, it was a show model, and, and they want they didn't have any in stock, and I said, well, I'll take the show model anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no, and then I discovered he knew my daughter and he knocked another fifty dollars off. And I'm like, hello, nice, <laughs> really nice. But 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 the point is that like when when you uh, when and you think about this, I mean, it doesn't really work in publishing, but it's a useful tip. Is that 
it's easier for a retailer to give you something else that they're selling because the value of that to you like I mean, let's take that five pack of TDK tapes from the 80s, right? That might have cost 10, 10 pounds uh, to buy as a, as a customer. But for the actual, for Dixon's or whoever the store was, it would only have cost them about five pounds. So you're getting 10 pounds value. They're only losing five pounds of stuff that they're giving you. And but so you, you throw it you, in, right? There are things that you can negotiate. So, you know, if you've got a deal, first of all, they want all the rights, and you never give them all the rights. They'll yeah. want world rights in perpetuity until the you know the heat death of the universe. We say, <laughs> well, no, obviously we're not going to do that. Yeah. We're going to get you know if usually um, with Ed, my agent, if we're negotiating a book, we go UK and um, Commonwealth rights. So you know that's the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, mm-hmm. and you know places like uh, India as well um, in the Commonwealth. So you know we usually go with that. We never give them the film and TV rights. We maybe give them the audio rights if they've got a good record with audio. We certainly don't give them foreign language rights. Uh, so that's that's usually the the offer there. The other thing as well. Um, you might hear of something called joint accounting, mm-hmm. um, which is where if you do a three book deal, they say, "Well, we're not we're going to do joint accounting on this." Well, what does that mean? Joint accounting means that you don't get any royalties until all three books are out, and all three books have earned out. Oh, wow! And that's becoming wow. increasingly common. So try and avoid joint accounting if you can. That's um, long, I, that would be a long haul, wouldn't it? I mean, if you yeah, look at it really even, is. even though a book a year, that's three years before you even see a penny is that right yeah yeah and usually um and that's if the books earn out uh, i mean that's yeah. usually if you get a fairly hefty advance they'll say well you know but if you're getting a crappy advance then avoid the joint accounting if you can yeah um, well ultimately uh, these, are, these are businesses aren't they they're not charities no, they've exactly. got shareholders that they have to answer to they're always going to try and get the best deal for their yeah. shareholders yeah. right yeah yeah yeah. Uh, and the oh the other thing uh, i had a script optioned a few months ago and my script agent Matt came back with the deal and there was some, I forget what it was for. Uh, there was some sort of percentage on there and it was like one and a half percent. I said, no, let, let, let's add another 2% to that. And they did it. It was great. Yeah. It was the greatest win I've ever had. <laughs> so I was punching the air because potentially that could be hundreds of thousands of pounds. You know, yeah. a couple of percent here or there in a movie deal. You know, it can, that, that's the difference between, you know, paying your mortgage off and, and or not, you know. So always watch those little percentages in those big deals. And it isn't the, you probably know this story better than I do, Mark, but isn't the reason why George Lucas, mm. uh, his massive success is he held, he held on to his right. He did some deal, he, didn't he? It, where- was the, it was the merchandising rights, which no one ever wanted before. No one oh. saw any value in the merch because the only films that had ever done anything what Disney had done merchandising for their films but obviously you know Mickey Mouse watches and stuff like that the Bond films had done a bit and I think the Planet of the Apes films had done a bit Mm. but no one ever really wanted because it was you know t-shirts it didn't have much value or whatever but he somehow knew that um you know the merchandise rights for the Star Wars movies would be worth a pretty penny and five Billion dollars later. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing story. Isn't yeah, it incredible? Yeah, yeah. Now, Sarai, Sarai also mentioned about being a night person. Now, I really appreciate this right. because I know we've talked about this a lot. People have this, they, they, I mean, I say they sometimes create a story in their head that they, they only work best at night. But, you know, there's, there's reasons behind that. Some people, you know, 
light maybe nighttime for them is when things get quiet it might not be that they're a night person it might just be that that's the time in their day when the kids are in bed and they can actually think and focus on a bit of work without getting a tug on the shoulder and and i think what i really appreciated about what saray said was the fact that even though she was a night person, she would always try to write first thing. And I've been banging on about this on the podcast and the academy for yeah. years now, it feels, that it's about not, you know, even if you are, you know, you you label yourself as a night person, the morning person, et cetera, et cetera, is that you don't have to be defined by it in terms of how you mm. work. And I really think if she hadn't have done that, would she have had the success that she did? Maybe not. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, who knows? It's um, you you've got to you know you've got to write whenever you can write, and sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be at a time of day that isn't convenient for you, or or whatever. You know, like I say, I I think I'm only a morning person now because I was forced to write on my commute into work on the train because it was the only time I, I I really had where I could shut the world off at, at that moment. You know, we had a young family then. I had a, you know a full time job. Um, that was my one moment of peace, and I would much rather have been napping on the way into Waterloo Station. <laughs> I think, <laughs> yeah. but now I'm 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 a complete convert to being a morning person. Uh, yeah. You know, so uh, yeah, and it's where I get my my best my best work done. So it's about habit building, and I always say this in the academy yeah. and the coaching on there. It's about you know if you want to play the probability game. What are the chances of you finishing or doing your writing if you start at ten o'clock at night? it's a lot lower chance of it happening than if you try it at eight o'clock in the morning. And that's that for me, just purely from a stats perspective, you're giving yourself more of a chance. Your book is more likely to get finished if you write in the morning than if you write at night. So if you are, if you're telling yourself still that you're a night person, that's fine. You know, if anyone's listening and saying, yeah, but Mark, I'm a night person. I, I don't write in the morning. It's sometimes about having to challenge those belief systems that you've created. Um, that might be true. But in some cases, uh, even if they are true, doesn't mean that you can only write at night. So I just yeah. think that I just see this again and again with the authors that we interview, Mark, is that so many of them do write first thing. So many of them are getting up a little bit earlier to get their writing in. And, and um, you know, as Saray said, I love this quote as well. She said it about claiming her space, territorial, yes. claiming her space as a writer. Yeah. And that's the first time I've ever heard a writer put it like that, like this idea of territorially claiming. I love it. It's like owning the importance of what she's doing. Well, it also comes from that thing of people not understanding what a writer does uh, and assuming that if you work at home, you're lounging about in your pyjamas all day, watching Netflix and occasionally doing a bit of writing here and there. Which, you know, occasionally, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, but no, 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 no. You know, I mean, my, I mean, my day to day, blimey, you know, I mean, you know, 90 minutes uh, of writing first thing in the morning and the rest of today has been about getting ready for the launch tomorrow. And yeah. then, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a business. It's a business. It I've got business stuff to do. There's phone calls and meetings and all that kind of stuff yeah, as well. Absolutely. So, yeah, it is important that because very few people do this kind of creative stuff. Very few people really understand it. You just have to go to a book event or a festival and hear members of the public 
ask questions about your working day and there are a lot of assumptions that it's a bit of a dos and it's not it's not. you know so no. it's um uh, and writers we don't help ourselves because we make jokes about it all the time i know yes. but, but but anyone well ha- the interesting thing is covid covid has given everyone a bit of a taster of it mm. and i must admit the biggest thing i didn't realize back in the late 90s when i started working from home running my own business the biggest thing i didn't realize was how people would treat your time differently because yeah. you were at home. It was like you were always available to 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 do an errand, to drop something yes. off, to pick someone up. And yes. I had to be really, I had to get quite kind of strict about my time. And I would say to people, I could do, I could do that, but would you call me if I was in the office? Would you call me at three o'clock in the afternoon and say, Dad, I've got a flat tire. Can you come pick me up? Because I <laughs> if I I couldn't do it. So you have to find the mm. way home. <laughs> so, yeah. And so that that for me becomes the rule. The rule is I'll do obviously if, if there's an emergency or if there's something that really and 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 let's be honest, working from home gives you those opportunities to go to the school assembly in the middle of the day or the sports day in the middle yeah, of the afternoon. Yeah. And I love that. So I absolutely yeah. love it. So I'm flexible on that. But you have I I use that idea of this question. Would you have called me if I worked in, the, in an office? Would you have called me at the office, asked me to leave the office? Because it's the same thing. It doesn't matter whether you're in an office yeah. or working from home. You're still working, earning money. And I think it requires incredible discipline when you work from home to structure your day. So I, when I heard that word, territorially claiming space yeah. as a writer, I was like, yes, that's, <laughs> that's it. That's exactly what you have to do. And I think if anyone's struggling with that, you know, take Saray's advice on that. And, 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 and also it's about setting expectations of people around you. It's about saying to your family, look, between nine and five, it's my work day. And please, you know, I even put things on my door. If I, like right now, I'm recording the podcast. We've got, I've got like yeah, a, got, you know, recording. You're right, yeah, 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 me too. Because yeah, they yeah. might just wander in and dad, can I do? And summer holidays now, folks. Da da da. Everything changes, <laughs> right? It's it's like early July in in Canada. The kids break up at the end of June, so we get we get full two months of of dad on board and don't know what to do and <laughs> can I do this and can I, and so you know. It's a whole different world. So working from home during the summer holidays, ultimate test. It's like mm. the Iron Man of working at home. <laughs> so you've got to create boundaries. You've got to own the importance of the work that you do. And I always say to the kids, I always say, look, I could come and do that, but then that's costing as a family, that's costing us this amount of money when I could be coaching or I could be doing it. And I'm like, you know, do you want me, do you want me to trade in that? Cause that's like your crisps for the next month. <laughs> then, then of course it's like, well, actually, uh, you know, but yeah, claim, claim that space folks, claim your space as a, as whether you work, just working from home, not even writing, but just working from home. It requires course, a lot of discipline. Of course, the flip side is, is if you are working in a salaried job and anyone so much as stubs their toe, oh, I've got to leave early. Exactly. I've got, a, I've got a, my child yeah. is ill. Don't ask any questions. No follow-up <laughs> questions. I have to leave. Bye, everyone. Bye. I'm a oh, parent. Make way. <laughs> I know. But then I think you can give leeway on that because I think I think companies expect so much from employees these days. Yes. I always remember I used to, oh, I'll never forget this one. I worked for six months on a project for a company uh, with a company I was in. Um, and I was managing a team of five of us. So all five of us were working away, trying to get me this really seriously impossible deadline. We were getting leaving the office at 7, 7.30, sometimes 8 o'clock every night. And the day before we finished the project, 
there was an announcement that the company had been taken over. And then my boss came up to me and said, oh, Mark, you know that project you, you've almost done? It's not relevant oh, anymore. And I was like, you've got to be kidding. God. So it's a bit of give and take as well. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that's why I left the corporate world. I don't know. <laughs> That might have been the straw. (laughs) That might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. But no, I always say I left the corporate world. I didn't run away from it. I was just so attracted to this world of being an entrepreneur, running your own business, that it 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 drew me like a magnet. So I always think it's great if you don't never run away from something, but always be drawn towards something. But yeah, it's a good one. And this other thing that uh, Saray said as well about this idea of an errand day. Again, super disciplined. It's like you know. That's it. Bundle all of your admin stuff into one day or one afternoon or one morning. Get it all done. Batch it. It's a classic coaching technique. Batch things together that are similar. And and if you spread those things out all through the week, it's amazing how much time you will lose, writing time that you'll lose, because you're just breaking the flow. And Mm -hmm. for some people, it's the reverse. Some people, it's like they work four days a week and then they have a writing day once a week or a writing afternoon. But I think, you know, that's the aim. We should all be working towards that errand day or admin day where we just clear all the admin stuff and then we leave the rest of the week available to create. I think that Mm. is a great way, a great thing to aim for if that's not where you're at right now in life. Um, Big ask, but you've got to put these dreams down, haven't you? You've got to you've got to put something in the ground to aim for. So yeah, find your own way of doing things. That's it. You know, see totally. exper- experiment. Oh, that's uh, a good idea yeah. for a podcast. That is a good idea for a podcast. Mm. What do you reckon? Mm. Brilliant <laughs> stuff, Mister Stay. But, what's uh, well, sorry, hang, on, hang on? Hang <laughs> on. The, the, the thing, the thing I really, really want to talk about: subversive but fun. Okay, oh. and uh, I, I want that on a t-shirt. I think it's a, I, I, it's um, if you're writing about. Issues, you know, contentious issues, things that might be divisive, things that might be challenging, things that might be really uh, difficult to pitch. Okay, uh, be subversive about it. You know, uh, I was uh, now I might be misremembering this, but Donald Glover, who people will know from shows like Community, he was Lando Carissian in Solo, but he has a hugely successful TV show called Atlanta, which is about uh, musicians trying to work in the rap industry, the hip hop industry, music industry, their lives, their romances, their challenges, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, hugely successful series goes from strength to strength. But I remember reading an interview with him where he didn't mention once that the entire cast would be black and all the production crew would be black because he knew that if he went in saying, oh, this is about the American black experience, which it is, the show Mm. is about that, suddenly, particularly if he's pitching to white people, they would be going, ah, that's what it's about. It's an issue TV show. It's about issues and that's how we're going to pitch it. And actually issues, they're quite difficult and they're quite divisive. Maybe we'll pass on that. So yeah. I think you need to be if you're going in your your duty is to entertain people as a writer but you know if you want to slip those issues in there maybe don't always lead with that that can be off-putting to people it's one of the reasons i like star trek right star trek is adventures in space it's wagon train to the stars okay that's how gene roddenberry pitched it to the network he said oh it's it's like a show that you already know that families across america absolutely love but we're putting it in space because space is exciting and it's new and there's a space race going on that's wonderful but what he didn't tell them is that they were constantly tackling 
racism, sexism, intolerance, all of those wonderful things that make for great drama. And he would occasionally get in trouble with the network because they were like, hang on, we thought this was a fun space uh, (laughs) show that you're doing. No, it's actually about the human experience. So when you're pitching something, I know the temptation is there to go, this is about a big, important issue. Look how important I am tackling this big, important issue. Actually, Slip that under the radar, you know. Let let them discover that in the reading of the script and and the development of the story. And once they've once they've signed the contract, once you've done your haggling and your haggling is over, in you in the Turkish bazaar of uh, you know TV and film and publishing or whatever you're working in, you know, once they've signed the contract, then you know, then you can start having fun with the subversive stuff. Subversive but fun. Put that on a t-shirt. Brilliant. Absolutely love it. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic <laughs> stuff. Great, great stuff. So, Mr. Stay, social media. What's going on in the world of social media this week? Okay, well, a friend of the podcast, Robin Sarti. Robin has been with us pretty much from the beginning. Uh, and just a bit of wonderful news. One of those little wins. I say little win. This is actually wonderful. She said, I've sent off my first manuscript to my new publisher, Proof Edits Before Launch and the cover, and she celebrated with a bowl of ice cream. Yay. <laughs> so it's got to be done. Uh, I do that every done. night, actually. Celebrate. I, like, I, need, I need a reason to celebrate it. Really, that's I fantastic. Can't. I seriously can't. Uh, we've still got people also sending in uh, their favourite bookshops as well. So uh, Tom Cooney, who is at Tom Cooney writes over on Twitter, he says, um, "No alibis books is definitely the top of the list in Belfast, Northern Ireland." And he popped in today and discovered that some uh, some impressive graffiti on the wall in the kids' section, and they've got some wonderful graffiti by Chris Riddell, who is one of the finest. Oh, yeah. I mean, he does a lot of... Uh, I think he does all of Neil Gaiman's um, children's books, but also a fantastic author in his own right as well. So do check out No Alibis books. Uh, we're going to put links to these in the show notes so you can check them out as well. And Darren James uh, did a wonderful video, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes as well, because Darren has done a fantastic job here. I finally got around to making a video to jump on the My Awesome Local Bookshop bandwagon. It's the Eagle Bookshop in Bedford. No one knows where Bedford is. If you look it up on a map, it's just under the staple. So <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful bookshop. I do urge you to check this video out because what it's got is nooks and crannies. It's got You turn a corner and suddenly there are sofas. There's a globe. There's all these wonderful, all these wonderful little corners and cosy chairs and little places to discover. And it's what I love about a bookshop is that feeling of discovery. When you turn a corner, you don't know what's going to be around that corner. So keep those coming in, folks. Um, drop us a line. We're we're on Facebook at Bestseller Experiment and Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. And if you go to bestsellerexperiment.com, there's a contact tab there. Drop us a line. We read them all. Brilliant. And and we, we're a bit underrepresented right now in the in the bookshop world in places like Scandinavia. So if anyone's listening to this in Scandinavia, please find your favorite book bookstore. And if it's impossible to pronounce, all the better, because I want to hear Mark <laughs> attempt it. So that's my mission this this week. Let's have your Thank Norwegians, you. your Finnish you so and your Swedish. Yeah. Let, let's let's uh let's get more let's get more coming and flowing in. And actually I'd, I'd like a few from uh, a few more from Australia in New Zealand. I don't know why I'm feeling that right now. I think so I can uh, do the accent. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be per- yeah. that'd be perfect. And and Europe as well. I mean, let's get some German German bookshops shot stops in there as well and uh, Oh, oh, you know what I did do this week? I complete how, how could I forget this? This was such an experience. 
I went to a recording studio in London's sweaty Soho, and I met Candida Gubbins, who does the audiobook uh, narration of the Witches of Woodville books, who, and she is marvellous, and she's so good. And she, you know, she does the accents and all those difficult words. But I had to read one paragraph uh, for the introduction of the audiobook, and it took four takes because who knew the word Luftwaffe was so difficult to pronounce? <laughs> But yeah, if you get if you get the audio book at the beginning, that that's me, um, oh. and that was that was amazing. That was absolutely How much brilliant. Fun is that? Yeah, really, really cool. Really, that's really cool. But brilliant, yes, yeah. excellent Luft, stuff. Luftwaffe, Luftwaffe, excellent. Wow. So, listen, folks, if you would like to um, contact us, you can pop along to the website bestsellerexperiment.com, Click on the contact form there. Drop us a note. Tell us what you're up to. Uh, send us your dream declaration, celebrate some milestone, huge or small, or tell us how the podcast uh, or an author that's appeared on the podcast has affected your life as an author. We love, love, love those stories. So do get in contact. And whilst you're there, folks, click on the newsletter button and subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you can get updates on every new show that we do, plus all lots of cool things happening in the bestseller experiment world. And uh, if you haven't heard about it, where have you been? 200 word challenge. If you want to get the writing habit of a lifetime, uh, our free challenge to challenge you to write 200 words a day, um, you can sign up to that by simply going to 200wordchallenge.com. Um, there is a now wait list for the Academy. So if you want to join the Academy, get along and put yourself on the wait list as well, because it's, uh, yeah, it's growing day by day. So we need you to sign up and the wait list and you'll hear about opportunities as and when they come about and Mr. Say good luck for tomorrow I hope it all goes well thank you I'll let you know next week <laughs> so Mr. Say good luck for tomorrow I hope it all goes well please please join Mark in his book launch uh, on YouTube uh, or watch it once it's live obviously and it's gone out there and until next week folks have a brilliant writing week and it's a goodbye from Mark 1 and a goodbye from Mark 2 goodbye Daddy, bye Bye!